the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. TGI Tuesdays. TGI Tuesday. <laughs> it's going to catch on. No, I don't think anyone wants to celebrate. Yeah. Is there anything good that happens normally on a Tuesday? Uh, Besides doing this show with yes, me, obviously. Yes. Yeah, Tuesday is kind of a, just a day, isn't oh, it? Oh, you're missing out. Our family does. Taco Tuesdays. Uh, no, you don't. Yes, we do. Do you actually do Taco why, Tuesdays? Why is that hard to believe? I felt, that felt more like something that you thought of as we were having this conversation. <laughs> My family does. Hi, right, you and LeBron James. Well, does he do Taco Tuesdays? Oh, he's, he tried to trademark it the other day. Oh, when people were like, that's you can't trademark right. it because he keeps every Tuesday, he Instagrams a whole Taco Tuesday that's yelling right. thing and showing tacos. But, well, we have so you a, actually uh, do it. There's a lovely taco place right down the road from okay. us called the Jalapeno Grill. And on Tuesdays, these delicious tacos are only $1. They're not sponsors of the show, but the tacos are way better than you think a dollar taco would be. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I are like, well, let's just get 10 tacos and call it a night. It's lovely. You really need to adopt a Taco Tuesday so lifestyle. It's in Naperville. It is in Naperville. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Uh, but a I, lot of places do this. This is a very common, this is a very weird way to start the show. There's a lot of places that do, have yeah, Taco yeah. Tuesdays, though. Yeah. And I'm telling you, I was pleasantly surprised. What about the fact that you and I are both eating cold uh, Pop-Tarts right now? Oh, do you want to go there? I okay. do, because this is, I, it has been a long time since I've eaten a cold Pop-Tart, and I'm loving it. No, I'm fine with the cold part. So Debbie is so wonderful. She keeps this snack cart. She does. Like well stocked, and I'm telling you guys, a little less well stocked, and we're done this, with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Like she kind of locks the door when we walk by. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but there were two boxes of pop tarts, mm -hmm. and I said, "Oh my goodness, maple brown sugar, mm -hmm. let's do this." Okay. And you were like, "I think I'm going to get strawberry." And I was oh, like, "Oh, no. every time, what a mistake!" It is the strawberry like uh, sprinkle one. Okay, it is. Oh, I would choose that ten times out of ten over the maple brown it's sugar. It's good, but it's no maple brown sugar. I can't believe we're having that. I thought we were oh, more aligned no, than this time. This oh, my, this tomato, tomato. You know, like I don't look down on you because you like that one better. I'm no, okay with it. It's not reciprocal. But uh, do you know when I was in high school for a season, uh, I would make myself. That was my breakfast every day. Was just putting a pop tart in the toaster and eating it in the car. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, if you saw pictures of me from high school, this would make sense. <laughs> Are you a little on the uh, Pop-Tart side? Yeah, a little, uh, <laughs> short and chunky. <laughs> and spring husky, sprinkle, husky. Sprinkles on top? Yes. Okay, we are burning time. You want to get to this topic? Sure. Here, we've talked about it in a lot of different ways, but I, I'm always interested in this topic of burnout because I feel like, especially in ministry, I'm always having conversations with pastors and lay leaders and volunteers and staff about burnout. So this is from businessinsider.com. Science says... 
the four best tricks for preventing burnout can make you more successful. Yeah. So there's a whole little intro. I mean, some of it's obvious as burnout can result in fatigue, irritability, decreased productivity can harm your problem solving and creative thinking abilities over time. Mayo Clinic reports that can even contribute to heart disease and type two diabetes while also increasing the likelihood of substance abuse. So uh, I think that alone is a worthwhile reason to talk about it. Yep. So let's get to these four Good tricks for preventing burnout. Yeah, these are. I think these are important because we do all work a lot of hours. I think you and I as pastors, we often read articles about pastor burnout. Like there seems to almost be something unique to it. Right. Uh, so these are, these are really helpful. Again, this is from Business Insider. Number one, take a break before you feel burnout symptoms. Overworking doesn't help productivity. In fact, it increases the risk of mistakes. That is an important point right there. Yeah, right. Though many famous entrepreneurs tout the, val- tout the value of working anywhere from 60 to 100 hours each week, to make their business a success, research has found that this level of overwork will typically have a negative outcome in the long run. This level of chronic overwork makes you far more likely to get burned out, and it may not even help your productivity. So it's saying, don't think more hours equals more work done. In fact, there might be a law of diminishing returns here. It's funny. I, I got to read what's next. Yeah, actually, It says an article out of the Harvard Business Review reports, in a study of consultants by Aaron Reed, a professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business, managers could not tell the difference, the difference between employees who actually worked 80 hours a week and those who just pretended to. Oh, wow. Reed was not able to find any evidence that those employees actually accomplished less or any sign that the overworking employees accomplished more. Wow. That's pretty humbling, right? Yep. 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 Number two, although number one, uh, my daughter in high school gets a lot of homework and yeah. I've tried to have this conversation with her. She's an overworker. Uh, and I've okay. tried to, t- I tried to say like it, at some point it's better just to go to bed yeah, and she's right. getting that, but it's funny how it's even from an early age. Number two, find meaning in your work. This will help you stay motivated. Startup founders should never chase a potential business idea just because it seems like a good money making opportunity. To, confin- to continue to be motivated over the long run, you must pursue meaningful ideas that you are truly passionate about. This became abundantly clear during a recent email conversation with Chris Ferry, founder of Boca Recovery Centers. He explained, I found my passion by founding an addiction treatment center because I've lived through addiction. I know how harmful it can be. That gives me the drive to keep doing what I do every day because the job has meaning to me. No matter what industry you're in, find meaning is, finding meaning is what will keep you from uh, what will keep you going no matter what. And that's backed by scientific research here. It says uh, being connected to a meaningful career connects to a longer life. So find meaning in your work and, and that will help you from becoming burned out. I mean, easier said than done, but that's exactly. pretty good. Number exactly. three, spur creativity by continually learning. It'll force your brain to make new connections. Learning doesn't stop after you graduate from school. As Adam Sinicki details for the Bioneer, the principles of neuroplasticity means that learning new things in adulthood forces your brain to make new connections. This allows it to come up with more creative solutions, drawing upon learning experiences in one area to address other challenges, which is why I think churches in particular mm-hmm. that actually provide like a continued education budget oh, interesting. for pastors even to go to a couple of conferences. I think I think that can be incredibly helpful. Number four, prioritize your relationships. Though some suggest that you need to take a step back from certain relationships to successfully grow your startup, these very same relationships can offer much needed relief from work-related stress. In fact, the famous 80-year Harvard study of adult development found that warm relationships were the biggest predictor of happiness for happiness later in life. I believe that. It's not just that hanging out with family or friends allows you to escape the stresses of work. In many cases, having the opportunity to talk about your situation with those who are closest to you will help relieve stress and prevent burnout. In other words, making time for warm, loving relationships with friends and family 
will help you stay happy and avoid getting stressed out. Talking through the issues you are facing with your startup could even help spur new ideas to get you out of a mental rut. Neglecting these relationships because of tough times at work will only cause more trouble for your overall well-being. Okay, so which of these are you really bad at? Uh, not taking a break. I'm good at taking breaks. <laughs> um, I think sometimes spurring creativity by continually learning. Oh, really? I think that's probably it. Really? I think it's if you told me I could go back to school right now, I probably wouldn't be very interested. Oh, uh, okay. So I do read, but I don't. I don't often think of like how do I? What do I need to be doing now to grow as this X or Y? Uh, so I can get into that sort of rut. How about yourself? Yeah, I think it is actually the first one, taking a break. Yeah, you've told that, but you've said that before. <laughs> Which I'm getting better at. You know, I'm very grateful for a wife whose quality time is her highest love language, and it's impossible to synthesize or to uh, just to fabricate quality time. It just yeah. is or it isn't, and there's no way to microwave that. You just have to do it. So, like, my inclination, my left to my own devices, my own kind of fallenness is just to keep working and working yeah. and working and yeah. working and working. Yeah. And there's always another hill or another thing I can do. And it's sort of this like this dangling care that's like, oh, one more hour and I'm really going to unlock yeah. this. I'm gonna, I think sometimes even like forced deadlines are like, nope, I said I'd be home by six. I'm, yes. not, I, I'm not working on this anymore. Like I am just letting this go, which again is easier said than done. Maybe you could coach me. Maybe you can uh, <laughs> that's the take one a break you, with me. You said you're the best at it. I'm like, hey, I'm good gosh, at that one. I need to learn from you. Yeah. Yep. You do. But, but you're good at like saying, Hey, I want to grow in my creativity and grow as a pastor, grow as a radio guy, whatever, and learn it better. And, and uh, I could learn that from you. Oh, wow. What a We're nice a way team. to end this segment. We make a good team. We're adorable. Let's hold hands. Let's go take a break together. <laughs> nah, that's okay. I'm going home. Uh, I'm kidding. All right. So coming up next here, uh, Chicago based mega church welcomes James McDonald into Fellowship. This is going to be a tough segment to talk about, but I think we need to. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, we should come back just one time when that song plays and both of us just yell, hey. Hey, yeah. This is, it feels like, you know, those like dancers who are squatting really low and then they kind of like stick their legs out and their arms up. It's like those Russian dancers. (laughs) This feels like the perfect song for them. And hey, I really did not know what you were going. You know what I'm talking about on that? And now I'm thinking about it. Like I've I've seen Fiddle on the Roof multiple times, and there's that dancing scene, <laughs> and they do that that weird that weird dance. I get yep. what you're saying. It's not Thank weird. You. It's their culture, John. It's only weird to us because we didn't grow up with Correct. it. So I didn't yesterday say it was wrong. I said it was weird. Oh, if I don't I do like it, it's weird. weird. Uh, if I'm kidding, uh, there is. Uh, by the way, yesterday we talked about all movies I've watched and not watched. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, never seen. Come the heck on. Never Sorry seen. to use such crass language, everybody. Yep. yep. Are Never you serious? seen Fiddler on the Roof, John? Have you seen Fiddler? Oh, you did just tell. So you've seen yes. Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. because John makes good decisions, and I've been in it. Whoa. You, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Who would you play? I was Kircha. Kircha. Was that a question? Was that a question? Disgraced, <laughs> disgraced uh, fiance or the spouse of? Oh, that's perfect oh. for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I. I Art imitating life. <laughs> so I was playing a married man who may as well have been single. Yeah, oh, so. well, you made it sad. Now oh. I don't want to laugh anymore. Oh, do, 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 no, I don't want to mock you anymore. Yes, like you do. I've never world. seen Fiddler on the Roof. I have oh. also never seen. Uh, Every song sounds the same. Casablanca. What are you doing with your life? I'm, oh, I haven't seen Casablanca. You either. guys. Boom. I'm but I'm also a fetus compared to you. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a feet. Okay, Ian I wanna, did call you 14 yesterday. I want to make a quote wall, and I'm, I want my first entry to be John saying, "I'm a fetus compared I'm a fetus. to you." 
Like, like, I don't know if that's supposed to mean you're a lot younger yeah, you're than like, us. Or... Weird, weird flex, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do we congratulate you on that? Or is right that... on. It's a hyperbolic comparison. You don't look so a day good. over zero. <laughs> <laughs> you don't look a day over in utero, my friend. That was wow. funny. That yeah, was funny. You, where did all this start? We will need movies I've not seen. Oh, right. Oh, that's Russian make, dancers. I want to make that a segment, actually. I think it'd be fun to talk about movies that you've not seen that you think you probably should have. I will bet you'll be surprised by the number of especially famous older movies I've never seen. Yeah, I want to do that. I don't want to do that right now, though. Can I give you one more? Oh, gosh. Never seen any, never actually seen any of the Godfather movies. I'm starting to actually get angry now. Never seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies. Why are you doing this to me? Why? <laughs> John's literally sprinting through the studio now. He's very unhappy. But I saw Spaceballs multiple times. <laughs> are you getting a sick joy out of this? I am. Is this Why are you this so is? mad, John? Okay, so Godfather 3, not worth watching. Just saying. One and two, though, are a masterpiece. Best two movies Did you, Were you in the room? He said, like, also, not Lord of the Rings. Never, they're too long. Every time I wanted to see them, they're like, it's like three hours long. But then he like raised his eyebrows and said, but I have seen Spaceballs. <laughs> that was he just, said multiple that times. Was just to get you turned the dagger. Said multiple times. It's that like was to get you angry. If you, if you add, I, okay. I also really love Spaceballs. I was like John's gonna, age when Spaceballs came out. So guys, that's it. we have to talk about something real now, okay? <laughs> we're on the clock. <laughs> <laughs> These microphones are hot. Uh, okay, so... In segments I don't want to do, but Brian said that we have to. Kind of do. Why don't you tell us what's going on? So, uh, someone we've had on the show before, Julie Royce, at julieroys.com. She's really been following this story about James McDonald. And I know we could get ourselves, uh, sometimes you'd be uncomfortable to go there. But something happened this weekend that I thought was just important uh, just to mention. And that's this, New Life Covenant Church, which is an enormous church around the Chicagoland area. Uh, invited James McDonald to speak at its men's retreat last week. And then on Sunday, the multi-site megachurch reportedly welcomed McDonald and his wife into fellowship, bringing them on stage, praying for them uh, publicly. And so the church has been asked for a um, uh, a comment on this, and they haven't made one, and neither has, uh, neither has James McDonald. But basically, somebody who was there said the pastor told the congregation that the elder board at New Life Covenant had unanimously voted to welcome, quote, Pastor James and his wife into the church she said the pastor then asked the congregation to extend their extend their hands toward the McDonald's, which they did as the pastor prayed for the McDonald's healing. And so the, one of the interesting things here that I think that we kind of need to wrestle with is a little bit. I doubt they do this for every new member of the church. Right. And so what's going on here? Oh, oh, Brian from. Well, I, I just want to ask, what do we think is because, again, this is going to play out. Who knows what they're exactly. Maybe they just want to let him be there. Who knows? Uh, it seems to be uh, setting up for him to take some sort of leadership position here. We don't know that. I, let me be very clear. But reading the article and, seems to be playing that out a little speculation bit. Speculation at best, though. Yeah, speculation at best. But even if it, but let's let's go down that road. Taking it away from James McDonald, I guess what I want to say for myself and for ask you is, at what what is the role of churches uh, in this culture we live in with with guys who and male and female men and women who have you know fall in or they were at a church and no longer. Um, and there seems to be some dispute, some hurt, even abuse in the background. Uh, what is the role of the next church before they elevate that person or hire that person or do anything? It feels like to me that all that we've read about James McDonald and all that went out at harvest and all that the elders there have said, it feels like, if a church is going to not welcome him just in a fellowship, but in any sort of leadership, any sort of advisory, any sort of teaching role, 
But there's a lot of work on James McDonald's ends and the church harvest and new life in hand in hand together before ever permitting him near anything of leadership or a or a uh, or a pulpit or a microphone. But what we've seen over and over and over again is these kind of celebrity pastors after a little bit of time getting another pulpit or getting another place of influence. And uh, I just think it's so dangerous. Okay, we don't know how this one's going to play out. Maybe they're not going to elevate them. Just kind of the tea leaves seem to be heading down that path. And I just think it's really dangerous. And it highlights something that we do very poorly at churches in general. Yeah. And I don't know that every church does it poorly. I know plenty of churches that do it. Broad brush. Exceptionally well. Right. And I think uh, so you you asked or I think proposed you posited that a lot of work would need to be done. I would say also a lot of time. Yes. I I think this is not a course you can cram for. I think. Part of what frustrates me, and again, everything about this right now is still speculatory, and I realize it's like, did I mention I didn't want to do this segment? You did. <laughs> but there is first it's important per- for us to there, do, though. What, what is important to know is that what happened within the church on Sunday is first-person accounts. Yeah. Like, this happened. That's true. The right. question is, what's the next step? And it's Chicagoland, and that's, I yep. think, very relevant. But yep. there is there is this hyper-obsession. We've mentioned this in sports, too, that people that are successful or they bring a lot of value to a team tend to get a lot more passes a lot more quickly than someone who maybe yep. doesn't possess the glorified gifts, the things that we see is really valuable, which is unfortunate because, like you said, we gravitate towards the celebrity culture, which means we're much more inclined. We with the broad brush again, of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to give passes much more quickly, much more easily when there maybe hasn't been the hard work of contrition and restitution and repentance and growth. And I think that's what bums me out because sometimes if it feels like those questions aren't even being asked, like, yes. yeah, but could they bring value to our team? Yeah. And I'm like value to our team is not a Christian way of thinking about, I'm not saying it's not a thing to think about, mm-hmm. but sometimes we've so been absorbed into this like, CEO capitalistic way of like seeing church's business. And there's plenty that we can learn from the marketplace. I'm not saying dismiss all of it. I just, whenever it comes to an intersection of like, I, what did Jesus say about this? What did Paul say about this? Like, what what did the early church fathers say about like what we're supposed to do here? And I think sometimes we just throw that out the window. Like, yeah, but he could help our team or help our church. I think that's part of what bums me out. And I do, I think you're right. Some of this feels a little bit, like just this in club and like you're going to be fine regardless and you yep. know don't worry about it that that frustrates me it is it just feels like time is the issue because so often what happens when you see a major pastor uh implode a little bit is they just go away for a little bit and they're yeah. just going to go away and then they reappear and you're kind of like I feel like there's more needed here I feel like mm-hmm. there's more needed like at no point uh i mean harvest has said things about what they would like to see happen and no it, like there needs to be some reconciliation there needs to be some work done and uh, yeah, this feels I'm hoping that, that what she's pointing to in this article is where she thinks this is going. I'm hoping it doesn't end up being true. Same. I'm hoping it ends up not being true. Right. And to be really clear, like ultimately our hope and prayer is for total healing. 100%. Of, of anybody who finds themselves with all sorts of moral failings or abuse of power, any of that. That is ultimately our goal and hope is that the yes. person will be healed and restored. Everyone's restorable, redeemable. Totally. For sure. It does not necessarily mean, though, even after a person has been, quote unquote, fully restored, that they're not still disqualified from leadership at Great the local point. church level. And that has to always remain in some context an option, I think. Yep. All right. Well, coming up next, a new bill seeks to introduce Bible classes across Florida public schools. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good My name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show 1160hope.com On Twitter at Common Good Talk 
Plus, if you're a podcaster, all of that stuff is always... Also, John's been doing this thing lately where if we have like in-studio guests, he'll break up yep. their interview, too. So if you go to 1160hope.com slash a common good, some of those specific interviews are also kind of highlighted. So if you want that specific interview, you can also listen just to that, which will have the least amount of Ian and Brian, and I can understand why that would be appealing. <laughs> uh, all right, so I mentioned it earlier. A new bill seeks to introduce Bible classes across Florida public schools as someone who's not from Florida, and was homeschooled, this will be a fun one to tackle. There what you you, uh, what's going on here? Let me just read the article. It's pretty short. Okay. Uh, a new bill introduced by a Florida Democrat seeks to introduce Bible classes as standard across the state schools. House Bill 341, which was put forward by evangelist and Jacksonville politician Kim Daniels, specifies that schools must offer classes covering both the Old and New Testament. The introductory text to the bill declares that each school district must offer specified courses relating to religion, Hebrew scriptures and Bible to certain students as elective courses. Hmm. While students would not be forced to attend the classes, they must all be presented with the option to enroll. In addition, the state's department of education would also be required to add the courses to the course code directory. Should the legislation be successful, it would take effect July 1st, 2020. Daniels is the founder of spoken word ministries has had mixed, uh, mixed success in her attempts to bring Christianity into the classroom in 2017, she was instrumental in the passing of the Florida Student and School Personal Religious Liberties Act, uh, which prohibits school districts from discriminating against students, parents, and school personnel on the va- basis of religious viewpoints or expression. Then in 2018, Daniel uh, spearheaded House Bill 839, which requires schools to display the motto, In God We Trust, in a prominent place on campus. However, the evangelist's previous attempt to introduce Bible classes failed to pass through the subcommittee stage earlier this year. Speaking to NBC2, students expressed mixed opinions on the legislative on the latest legislative proposal. I personally feel like a majority of students wouldn't care about the class, one said. I asked them, are they going to teach the Torah, the Quran, and all the other stuff because separation of church and state? Others felt more optimistic about the notion of elective Bible classes. Don't shut anything out that you haven't tried, said one high schooler, suggesting that the new course could open up your mind and help students develop more diverse friendships. So uh, this person seems to be, this representative seems to be, uh, this seems to be her thing to try to get the Bible into public school, into classrooms. Uh, wondering now that you get the background of it, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I so wanted to hear your thoughts. I feel like this is like a hot button issue for you. Like, I feel like this mm. is a topic that I've seen you get a little worked up about in the past. Uh, I see what you're doing to me. No, I'm not doing. Oh, no, 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 I'm not doing anything. I'm in. I'm ready to I jump. Like I'm, I'm ready to jump. Guy. Okay, jump. I'm ready to Go jump. Uh, <laughs> because these are electives, I have no problem with it. They're right. electives. I thought you were going to say that. You need to have an elective in the Quran. You need to have an elective. Yes. Uh, in the Torah. Yes. You need to have an elective in uh, across the board. Yep. Like this. My point has always been when it comes to public schools, and I speak as one who has three children in public schools. That's worth stating. Good when point. it comes to public schools, I don't send my kids to that public school to have them pushed any religion, whether it be Christianity or anything else. Right. That's my job as uh, as their parent, and that's our job as the church. Yeah. Because uh, if you're like, well, isn't it a great way to get Christianity into kids, uh, into their um, uh, in, uh, on their radar? Yes. I would ask you, Christian person out there, hmm. how do you feel when you become the minority? And let's say we did it. We did something earlier today or yesterday about the stats about 
uh, non-religion being the number one thing for millennials being yeah, the number right. one. What happens if atheism takes over as a number one and we start having school electives on atheism? Hmm. I wouldn't be thrilled about that. Hmm. How about if you live in a community? You talked about it in your Detroit area. There are some communities there that are primarily Muslim. Yeah. What about those public schools teaching uh you know, do they get to choose what religious text they teach in there? It's just a, it's a slippery slope that I don't want to go down. Now, the Bible is a wonderful literary book that I think is great value being taught. Uh, my daughter taught, was taught comparative religions hmm. uh, in, I think, what's the equivalent of her social studies class last year. Uh, and I had to sit with her and we talked about Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Muslim, uh, Islam, we talked about all of them, and she learned a lot. In that context, I think it's great. But I went to Wheaton College. You went to Judson. We took great Bible classes. We went to that school for that purpose. That's right, right. I'm not sending my kid to public schools so that they can be uh, indoctrinated by whatever the majority person in my town feels like should happen. And that's, I get it. We're Christians, and we, in most places in our country, are still the majority, uh, but that doesn't make it right to be like, we are going to impose what we want in a public school. Mm-hmm. I have to say again, it's a public school. <laughs> so what we want for Christianity, we've got to be okay with all the other faiths as well. Would you guess that most of the people kind of behind this would be okay with what you're proposing to to give electives to all these world religions? Uh, I would hope so. I am. I'm a little doubtful for the person. I'm only reading an article, so I don't know right, her. Right. But when she's described primarily as an evangelist, the founder of Spoken Word Ministries, and yeah. like she's been trying many different right, bills, right, right. I would guess not. I would think most people would. I like the fact that they're electives. Once once they, once they, I read this and it went down the elective route, uh-huh. I'm like, great. Right. If a kid wants to learn Old Testament and New Testament as an elective, I'd like to know how they're teaching it. Yeah. Um, but all I'm saying is there needs to be there needs to be some counterbalance here, so it's not just a Christianity that's being taught. And I'm a Christian pastor, like I'm I'm pro Christianity. Yeah, I just know the slippery slope <laughs> as to where this could end, uh, and I don't think it's fair to our uh, brothers and sisters in our towns of different faith or of no faith at all. And right. I, I feel I feel for them in that. And so yeah, I would I would want to uh, I would want to caution how this is done. I, uh, I remember when I was at Judson studying student ministry and I bought a book on atheism just because I had a bunch of friends who were atheists. And I was like, I'd like to I'd like to take a deeper dive. I was just interested. And I had it in my dorm room and a friend came by and he goes, whose is this? And I go, oh, that's mine. I bought it last week. He goes, what are you doing with a book on atheism? Huh. I was like, hey, man, I'm studying here to be a youth pastor. I'm not becoming an atheist. I'm just curious. I don't know a bunch of my friends are. I wanted to kind of. And he goes, you need to get rid of that book right now. Really? Like I was like, you, I'm not going to get rid of the book. You were letting something in. Kind of, yeah. And I said, I'm not going to. No, that book was $17.99. I'm not getting rid of that book. You want to uh, buy it before you burn it? <laughs> right, you want to buy it before right. you burn it? <laughs> and they said, well, what if I told you that that book is causing me to stumble? And I was like, all right, man. Like He said that to you. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of where I, I lost him a little bit. But I'm wondering if you think, like, if you had to guess, what is the ultimate motivation behind things like this? Like, is it the, this is how we're going to win students by just have giving them as much face time as possible? I think so. so anywhere in broadcasting or education that we can get the name of Jesus in front of them, that's the win that we're shooting for? So yesterday we gave the stats that with each generation, there's less and less Christians. Right. And I think this is Kim Daniels, in this case, her way of saying, um, Here's a way that maybe maybe here's a way we can stem that tide. Maybe they're not even being uh, they're not even being introduced to the Bible. 
And she's saying maybe if we can introduce more kids to the Bible, then, you know, more kids will accept it and this and that. That's my guess. That's the heart behind it is my guess. My doubt is it's like, oh, this is a great historical book for them. My guess is there's a little bit of like, uh, I feel like if we can just get the Bible in front of them. Right. Uh, that, but I think that she's missing some of the ancillary issues with parents, uh-huh. with people of other faith, with the government. I think there's some other things here that are that are problematic. And even just some of the nuance of what it means to just put a Bible in front of Who's somebody. teaching it? <laughs> right. Like even us as adults, how many times have people approached you like, hey, I started in the Gospels and are they all supposed to repeat? Is that or I started in Genesis and by the time I got to the fourth book really confused about what was going on like let's let's not pretend it's just kids yeah to just plop a bible in front of somebody and hope like oh it's it's the living word of god that that'll do something yep. like it'll just come out of there <laughs> right there's a lot more nuance yeah. that i think needs to be considered all right coming up next a super interesting article that says uh sex before kissing how 15 year old girls are dealing with porn obsessed boys that's what's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hey guys, welcome back to The Common Good, and that is the beginning of a 90s rom-com. That's what that music makes me think of every time. This is the closing credits of a 90s rom-com, and everyone's hugging on the rooftop of their high school or something. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. Oh, thanks, man. I'm a uh, affirmation guy. John Cusack's in it, I'm of sure. Course. No, that'd be 80s. That'd be 80s. Well, he ventured into Did the 90s. In okay. Okay. Maybe not successfully. I don't think any 80s movie could be considered a rom-com without John Cusack in it. Oh, you're probably who's the who's the rom com guy right now? Who's the John Cusack? Ooh, see, it's era? not. I, I probably haven't seen many. Is it's it not a, really my era. I know. Is it a Ryan Reynolds? Maybe, but he's also Deadpool. Can he also so, be? You know who would know? You know who's in the rom coms? PJ John, our, our <laughs> oh, producer. That's right. Hey, John is a rom com <laughs> expert. Yep. What do you think? What? Who's our Who's our John Cusack of today? Uh let's see. Who's that guy who's in La La Land? Ryan Gosling, right? Oh, that's what I was thinking of, not Ryan Reynolds. I was thinking of Ryan Gosling. (laughs) Ryan Gosling, because he's in a couple, like, really popular romantic comedies. No, you're thinking of Ryan Seacrist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that, that's. No, you are not. Okay. Maybe it's, maybe it's Dwayne the Rock Johnson. (laughs) Uh, I mean. Name a single rom-com he's in. Name a movie he's in. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I'm going over to, uh, Fast and the Furious. <laughs> oh, yeah, well done. Yeah, Way Hobbs to go. And Shaw. <laughs> Hobbs Moana. and Shaw. Okay, oh, you guys. Ooh, Moana. <sighs> Something is in the water because we have been this is bad. extra derailed. All right. Yeah. Uh, so here's the really frightening headline. And the article is equally as frightening, but also Terrifying. really convicting. Uh, it says, Sex Before Kissing How 15 Year Old Girls Are Dealing with Porn Obsessed Boys. Yep. What's going on here? Uh, not, not anything good, man. Yeah. It's basically trying to tell us that the, that we live in a culture uh, that through the porn industry has continued to objectify women. And now, you know, that's always been the case. But now the porn industry through the Internet, right, through being kids ability to be online is just getting younger and younger. And so teenage boys uh, in their real formative years Pornography with boys of that age is really a big deal. And that's then seeping into how do they interact with girls, right? right like it's almost right. weird enough when you're 15 years old. How do you right. interact with the girls? Well, now if you've been, if you've been, um, if you've watched pornography on some level, hmm. uh, then, then you start to even at that young age begin to see girls in a certain way. And what this study and what this, um, 
uh, story is kind of talking about is now something that girls are have to putting up with is literally boys texting them for pornographic pictures of them Gosh. before they've ever, it, it, to take the article, right, sex before kissing. Right. Like there is no uh, movement along this kind of natural spectrum of teenage uh, dating, but instead it's like through texting, through the internet, through this, there's a lot more like, send this to me, do this. And, and girls are like, what are we supposed to do with this? This is a really scary underbelly of our culture right here, our teenage culture. And I, man, I don't know how... Much of this is just my own naivete. Like, this is such a different era from when we were teenagers. Um, and, like, teenage boys were terrible when we were that age, too. Like, I'm not saying necessarily but that different. they're... But different with yeah. different things shaping and forming, forming them. We talk a lot about formation and the things that, you know, kind of are at the disposal. One of the things this says here, it says... Um, Speaking of these young girls, some see sex only in terms of performance, where what counts most is the boy enjoying it. I asked a 15-year-old about her first sexual experience, and she replied, I think my body looked okay. He seemed to enjoy it. Like that... That that makes me want to cry. That makes me want to cry, honestly. Like that... And maybe someone's listening thinking, well, that's pretty normal. That's a pretty common age for that. I, I don't... It's still... That feels like a punch to my gut, and I... The whole article is like wrought with comments like this. This one is also pretty humbling. When asked, how do you know a guy likes you? An eighth grade girl replied, uh, he still wants to talk to you after you give him oral sex. I mean, it's craziness. I think about what I was like in the eighth grade. I didn't like these weren't even like things in your mind. Like you were in eighth grade. It's just craziness. And so you read this article and you're like, uh, like, we've got to get a handle on this as a culture. Like, here's the biggest lie that we that we tell boys as a culture uh, is that pornography is not destructive. Like, it's something that all men do, and it's nothing right, bad to it. Right. There's nothing destructive about it. I, it. We're seeing the destructiveness here in this article and in these things. You're seeing it right here. So I, I don't know necessarily what the church needs to do, because I feel like in a lot of ways this is such a massive issue, and it can it, it's so pervasive, and a lot of it has to do with you know, again, how we're being formed by our technology and the things that we're taking in through the senses. I think like things like this, a 15 year old girl said that she didn't enjoy sex at all, but that getting it out of the way quickly was the only way her boyfriend would stop pressuring her and actually just watch a movie. So like how heartbreaking Gosh. that she just wants to watch a movie with her boyfriend. He wouldn't stop pressuring her. So something in her worldview is saying, yeah. listen, just give him what he wants and he'll stop bothering you. So you can just finally watch a movie Yeah, like that is so depraved and so broken on so many levels. How do we, how do we turn that around? Uh, I think that we have to have our eyes open. First of all, we as a culture, a church culture, parents, hopefully a culture as a whole needs to see that, that pornography is not a neutral thing. Yeah. That it is, you know, it's something we joke about. It's something that, you know, you'll turn on radio shows and it jokes about, but especially in the hands of, uh, of teenage boys, it is a really dangerous thing. Let me let me read this one to you. A 2012 review on research on the impact of Internet pornography on adolescents found that adolescent consumption of Internet pornography was linked to attitudinal changes, including acceptance of male dominance and female submission as the primary sexual paradigm with women viewed as, quote, sexual playthings eager to fulfill males sexual desires. Uh. And that the more people uh, who um, watched pornography 
they were they were more aggressive. Like we that's got to scare us it as a culture. And and it says at the end of this article, it is wrong to leave sexual formation in the hands of the global sex industry. We need to do more to help young people stand up against warped notions of sexuality conveyed in pornography. You know, until we see this as a big deal as the church, uh, as parents, but even as a culture, the. They're going to they now are most 15 year olds or older are holding devices that they can find anything. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. you know, you used to, uh, you know, to find pornography as a 15 year old back in the day. Yeah. You put some work into it. Now it's on your phone. Yeah. And you, so if nothing else, parents who are listening to this need to hear, like, you better be monitoring your kids what they're looking at. Yeah. You they're, better yeah. be monitoring. But there's. This has to become a big deal for us. This has to be a big deal. Well, let me read another thing that I don't want to read, but I think needs to be read. Um, another organization that's sort of working to kind of help expose this says in the past few years, we have had a huge increase in intimate partner rape of women from 14 to 80 plus. The biggest common denominator is consumption of porn by the offender with offenders not able to differentiate between fantasy and reality. Believing women are quote up for it 24 seven ascribing to the myth that quote, no means yes. And yes means anal obviously to uh, oblivious to injuries caused and never even considering consent. We have seen a huge increase in deprivation of liberty, physical injuries, torture, drugging, filming, and sharing footage without consent. That that should do more than just break our hearts. That should move us to some kind of action. And I don't know. I mean, even just as a father, what do you what do you do with that? Oh, it it scares me. Like you can't live scared, but you got to it reminds us that we have to be talking to our kids. Like the hard part is when your kid gets to be like 15 or 16, you still kind of think of them like they're eight or nine. Right. Right. And then you're reading the ages in this. And you're like, Oh my goodness. But yeah. you know, there's, Unbelievable. An, there's an increasing trend to give your kids phones at a younger age, myself included, but people who are giving their kids un uh, uh, not watching all uh, the, what they're looking at. You're, you're in for a world of hurt apparently, especially with boys. Uh, but also we need to be having these conversations with our kids and they're really hard. I'm not good at this, but there's reading an article like this means that like, yeah, we've got to be talking about this with our kids. Well, and I'll just end with this. I think it, the article ends pretty brilliantly. It says it's wrong to leave sexual formation in the hands of the global sex industry. Yep. We need to do more to help young people stand up against warped notions of sexuality conveyed in pornography. So to that, I would say, amen. Hey, it's maybe difficult to know exactly where to begin, but I say amen and amen. Well, a hard topic, but one I think worth talking about. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And uh, it's been a while since we've kind of dove into the Twittersphere. It seemed like it was inevitable. We were, <laughs> we were going to have to. It's a, right? dangerous pool. it's a dangerous pool to swim in every now and then. Yeah. How does it make you feel when you see just a Twitter on the rundown? You're like, okay, what are we doing? I'm what is click, yeah, yeah, you kind of hover over it. Like, do I click? Do I click? But well, no, no, I actually like it because it's always very timely. And Well, that's the other thing because sometimes it's like somebody tweeted something 
ridiculous and we got to talk about it. But other times, you know, we, we follow some authors and pastors. Like, yeah. hey, somebody tweeted this really thoughtful thing. It's not really something. It's not a long form interview or anything, but it is an interesting thought. Uh, yeah, we started taking stuff from Twitter more and more for that reason. I feel right. like, uh, but I could tell from like when you put it on the thing, I can tell by who it is. Like, okay, this is gonna be great. Or okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and this next segment is gonna be the latter. So uh, today, President Donald J. Trump tweeted something. Yep. Why don't you read it? Oh, uh, I do not have the tweet right in front of me. Um, but the big part, it was about the impeachment, right? And so. Uh, again, regardless of what you think of the impeachment going on right now, or the impeachment, sorry, inquiry that's going on in Washington, if you're out there, uh, some of you are hoping that he will be impeached tomorrow, that some big bombshell will come out, and some of you are uh, think this is a huge miscarriage of justice, and it's just a way for the Democrats to try to get him out of office, because as Trump said today, because uh, they can't beat him at the polls, is what he said. Uh, and so... When things come out, and there was some movement today, uh, Trump's um, uh, ambassador maybe to the Ukraine, uh, he was speaking, uh, he was uh, interviewed on Capitol Hill. Uh, he was a U.S. diplomat currently in the Ukraine, Bill Taylor. And so what ends up happening is oftentimes when there's movement in the story, that is when the president tweets the most. So you can kind of see it, right? When the big stories come out, he'll tweet 20, 30 times in a day. Uh, but it's something about what he tweeted today, because it's one thing for him to tweet about the impeachment inquiry. You can understand why he would be upset about it, especially if he believes he did nothing wrong. But here was the end of his tweet. Uh, he said he called on Republicans to be tougher in his defense, uh, warned in a tweet that Democrats were setting a precedent that a president of their own party could be impeached in the future without due process. And then he wrote this. All Republicans must remember what we are, what they are witnessing here, a lynching. But we will win. That is how he ended his tweet. And so the firestorm of that tweet. Uh, and I'm becoming a believer that he doesn't tweet anything by accident. Uh, the firestorm of that one is the use of the word lynching yeah. and the um, the historical power of that word and him likening what he is going through through uh, this impeachment inquiry uh, with lynching. And it again, people went crazy about it. Right. The Congressional Black Caucus chairwoman Karen Bass told CNN that Trump's lynching tweet is consistent when he's just throwing out racial bombs. Uh, and that uh, Republican Harley Ruda, a California Democrat, uh, called Trump's tweet offensive. Uh, and it, CNN goes on to say it was impossible to judge the president's motivations for, for sure, but it would not be the first time that the president has stoked a fierce controversy to take attention away from an event, in this case, Taylor's appearance, that could be politically damaging for him. And so... Uh, when I think when we saw that tweet, you, both you and I, that he used the word lynching, it just felt like it crossed a line. It felt like it was uh, unfair is a, is a nice way to put it. And so oh gosh, it, it's it, way worse than unfair. I was trying to be nice. And so it, no, it, don't don't be nice to it, the use of the word lynching. It again raises the power of words and the importance of words. But uh, it certainly is a word uh, that is not neutral. And so for the president to use it in his tweet today. Uh, rightfully was offensive, especially to many African-American people. Yeah, it needs to be. I just one of those comments was that it's hard to tell what his motivation was, what his intention was. I don't think it matters, mm -hmm. to be honest. I mean, clearly that would that would intensify. But 
someone of that caliber in that office with that audience to use a word like that, honestly, regardless of their intention, mm-hmm. is horrifically inappropriate and absolutely appalling. Like, it isn't just like, oh, that was in poor taste or, oh, that was a little bit much. Like, it, it is so gut-wrenchingly – like, I'm trying to imagine a president of the past – tweeting anything to that caliber like regardless of where you land in party politics or policy like we we, it's got we have to be at a place where we can stand back and say that was just wholesale completely unacceptable Mm. and i don't know i mean it's interesting to see how the internet is always reacting and uh it never sleeps so (laughs) you know he's tweeted a thousand times since then uh sort of business as usual so i don't know what we even hope from doing a segment on this to be honest other than to say one uh that is so egregious in every way shape or form at least i won't speak for you at least from where i sit in my opinion but to also say that words do matter, so that for someone to simply toss out any any of those any any word that you might think it could be problematic uh, or even useful, like there's something to be said about you know I think it was Richard Rohr that says words create worlds, like the language that we choose to use in our churches, in our families, these create cultures, they create beliefs, they create la- language matters, and. To simply say, like, maybe he wasn't thinking or he was being flippant. That's also problematic. You have a responsibility by holding this office to be more uh, intentional about the words you use. And again, if he's being intentional, that's honestly even more horrific. And to think about my brothers and sisters of color, like I'm saying this as a white guy. Mm -hmm. I cannot even imagine what it must be like to be a person of color in this country to see the president of the country you live in tweet something like this. Yeah. That has got to be devastating. Yeah. It's, um, for me, it's interesting. When, when you say that words matter, uh, when, when words start to lose their impact, right? Like, here, here's an example. Uh, now that we're, you know, 20 years almost away from saying something like 9-11, like when, when someone who experienced 9-11 uh, – hears about september 11th it's uh it's it brings back all these memories and all this stuff we're now far enough away that that 9-11 can be used in many different ways like i remember hearing somebody recently be like they <laughs> they had a hard time in their life and they they likened it to 9-11 you're like i i don't think that works hmm. holocaust right we did a story a couple of months ago about people starting to take selfies at the holocaust museum when things start to lose their gravity then it opens the door to them the things that 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 per- that did those in the beginning happening again. And that's the danger of just throwing out a word like lynching again without any um, acknowledgement to what that actually means in our history and what it means for the people uh, who were most um, uh, at the hands of it. Right. So lynching means I just looked it up on dictionary dot com or whatever it says of a mob to kill someone, especially by hanging for an alleged offense with or without a legal trial. And so it, it's it's the the darkness of our of our of our culture uh, years ago, where uh, primarily African American people were just being killed um, by mobs of uh, of primarily white people. And so, uh, again, to use the word flippantly like this, and like you said, I'm I'm a believer that it's usually intentionally. But like you said, even if it's not intentionally, to use words flippantly removes the meaning from them. And once you remove the meanings from words, then you start to lose um, 
what what we need to learn from them. And I feel like that's what happens when he flippantly throws out the word lynching. It's just it, it's yeah, it's I, dangerous. There's yeah, a danger. I was going to say I don't think I agree. I don't think using it flippantly removes the meaning at all. I I think it shows a carelessness for the meaning of the word. I I think to use it flippantly doesn't diminish the power of the it's why the internet is blowing up on it right now because his yeah, flippancy people are pushing back i think what also what often happens with language is once we start using things flippantly uh it begins to lose its power but it's a good thing that the internet's pushing back yeah i, I again i i don't think i agree with you i don't think the flippancy removes that of its power at all i i think it's i think it becomes almost more damaging more more powerful i think it actually gains power when we use it flippantly because for like a college professor to teach on lynching mm-hmm. is an appropriate context and an appropriate use. Like we need to remember and understand what was happening here. To use it flippantly, I think almost amplifies its power. Interesting. Because it has implications that harm people because it's being used in a way that is not educating. That is not like even in the feed, someone, you know, a couple of people are posting photos of actual lynchings. And I just saw someone comment and say, I agree with your point, but the photo is a bit much. Mm. I'm like, a bit much? It's a f- it actually happened though. That's a real thing, and so I was like, "Yeah, but I don't want to. I don't want to see that." Like sure, I just sure. watched a, a short video on the the lynching museum in Alabama. Uh, it's it's that. worth a watch. It's like ten minutes long. It is haunting though. It mm. will it will I think shed some light on this tweet in a way that is uh, really helpful, but really painful though, and something that I I think is is worth actually talking about yeah. and pushing back on. If anything, the good the good that could come out of this is having a conversation again. With your kids or with other people, going, hey, here's what lynching was in our history. Yeah, right. allow it to bring it back up, and then it, then it, that, that's when it, that's when it keeps its power. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's disturbing to see it thrown around again, somewhat flippantly. All right. Well, coming up next, we're going to take a, a bit of a right turn. It's an article out of Missio Alliance, and it's called "The Introverted Missional." So, for anyone that maybe self-identifies as an introverted person, I think this you might find this really, really intriguing. And that's what's coming up next on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. I don't know why I said back like that. I just felt really passionate about it. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, or wherever it is you get your podcast. If you are a podcaster, if you like, subscribe, review, or even maybe if you're up for it, share it with a friend. Maybe. That stuff. Please. Oh gosh. No, you don't have to get to begging, Brian. Please. Okay. That's probably hurting us more than helping (laughs) us. Um, All right. So a, uh, a website, missioalliance.org is one that I feel like we've been referencing a lot lately. The content is so good. And I loved the title, the introverted missional, which we've talked a little bit about some of the introvert extrovert stuff. Um, You've landed on extrovert, right? Is that? Yeah, I'm less extroverted than I used to you be. You were saying that. That's I'm right. less extroverted, but I've always I've always landed as an extrovert. So so this is by uh, Bob Hyatt, and it says, I'll just read the first couple paragraphs, yeah, and then we'll get into it. Um, I'm one of those introverts who has learned to put on the vestment of extroversion in ministry situations, mainly because it's difficult to lead in a community from your chair in the corner. So at church, I will greet the newcomers, run through the list of questions I keep in my back pocket, make small talk, but I confess... 
It's exhausting. I feel so much more at home sitting one-on-one with someone in a pastoral relationship, talking over things that matter over coffee, than I do in a room full of people chit-chatting. It's even harder outside of those ministry spaces where I'm deprived of my standard conversational churches. Parenthetically, how did you hear about this church? Are you new in town? How's that thing that we've been praying for? One neighbor finally decided to come to church with us one week at my extroverted wife's invitation, of course. And after hearing me preach, she remarked, I have never seen that Bob. We have been neighbors for five years. <laughs> That's good. So what do you think? What do you think of this idea? And you'd mentioned kind of a little earlier that you're getting or feeling more introverted the older that you get. Does that resonate with you? It does, because I think that one thing we do, we all want to live on mission, right? We all want to. Uh, I don't know that everyone does. I, we should all as Christians, right? <laughs> like we, we preach about do the work of an evangelist, do uh, you know, what does it look like to be on mission? You know, you you guys preach through your blessed practices and all this stuff. Uh, but uh, sometimes well, the way that that's presented through the years, uh, for me at least, has been like, and this is where the introvert is like, man, I don't get this. It's like, you know, you're on an elevator and I go, hey, how are you? I'm Brian. Uh, hey, nice to meet you. Yeah, you know Jesus? Yeah. Oh, what? what? And it's kind of like this, not even just extroversion, but it's like this uh, boldness that's right there. Uh, and I I really appreciate this article going, you know what? I'm not the type to just go up to somebody at a coffee shop and be like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And he he the author here says, like, he's always felt guilty about that. And at the same time, has always had a somewhat of a jealousy of people who right. can do that. Right. And so what he's trying to say is, what does it look like to be missional while introverted? While not being like somebody who wants to. And he goes into some great reasons, some great ways. But I think that. We, we, we got to be one of the things that comes out of this is don't uh, don't always link extroversion with boldness and living yeah. on mission versus like we're still wired in different ways. Yeah, he says, uh, I recognize that this isn't ideal. Theologically, I know I should always be looking out for those opportunities to do good for others, to offer friendship and compassion, to see Jesus and others and be Jesus to others. But often when I see people conversing easily at the store, or the coffee shop, especially those who are chatting others up in line with ease or striking up an impromptu conversation with someone at the table the next table over, I'm filled with both awe and no small amount of shame. Mm-hmm. I have friends who tell stories of getting to know their waiters, their mail carriers, their baristas, and over time, seeing those folks come to faith. And I have often wondered, why can't I do that? Why must I hide within such a personal bubble all the time when I'm out in public? Mm. Which I pause. I really appreciate his humility there and his vulnerability in saying, there's a lot about this feeling that I don't like. You know, I think so often we just sort of talk about, oh, I'm, ex- I'm extroverted, I'm introverted. He's saying, no, there's at times where I feel this struggle or what he, he you know, he's identifying as maybe a deficiency and he's like, oh, I don't want to be like that, but I can't help yeah. the fact that I am. And he says, I have, I have come to realize that I do not have to move someone from non-believer to follower of Jesus in one conversation across the space between two tables of Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I am, however, ever committed to the invitational and relational nature of the kingdom of God, the God who invites us, uh, invites us in, wants to see the same invitational relational heart formed in us to the point where we long to see the kingdom opened in the lives of those around us through lines of relationship. So he gives a couple of ideas for how he says even introverts can lean into the mission of God in these spaces that we find most intimidating. Why don't you yeah. talk to us a little bit about them? Yeah. The first one I thought is really interesting. It's find something that will do the heavy lifting for you. What does that mean? So something that is an easy talking point. And he shares a story about him and his wife being at a community concert, you know, in the summertime thinking a lot of our towns around here, you can go and hear a concert at a band shell or something. 
And he said he noticed they were just sitting there kind of minding their own business and noticed a lot of people around them had their dogs. So uh-huh. he went home and got a dog, got got a dog, got their dog. <laughs> right. Just <laughs> took a neighbor's dog. dog. Right. He went home and got their dog and came back. And all of a sudden there were all these natural connections being made uh, with other people who had dogs. It became an easy uh, talking point. And he says, you don't have to be a dog person to have the same experience. There are other things you can do that will open people up to you and give you the chance to connect. When our kids were younger, he says, taking them to the park to play was a surefire way to attract others with similarly aged kids who wanted to converse. Babies, he says, are literally magnet- magnetic, that drawing people from true. across the room. That's true. Maybe you have a hobby, such as knitting. Just sit outside or in a coffee shop and do that. I don't want to do that. No, you don't. No. But basically going, hey, it doesn't have to be you going up to somebody just cold and being like, hey, you want to be friends? You want to talk? Sometimes there's something that you can do to bridge that gap. I love this one about about dogs just kind of doing that. When we walk our dog, we always end up talking to other right, people who course. have dogs. Of course. The second observation, he says, what do you do when someone does initiate a conversation? As it turns out, introverts are good at listening and observation. What if we began to think about being out in public spaces on mission for God, not so mm. much as looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus, which he says is terrifying, but as simply looking for those chances to listen for Jesus. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. What if we began to think about being out in public spaces on mission for God, not so much looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus, but simply looking for those chances. I just repeated it because it showed up twice in this article. <laughs> the prospect of starting a conversation. Like you just own that instead of just like, I did that for uh, just a pound yeah, a glitch in the mainframe. The the prospect of starting a conversation can be daunting, but the idea of just being available to listen, I can do that. And knowing that God is always at work in the lives of those around us long before we even arrive on the scene means that I don't have to find a way to work Jesus into a conversation. I would add, amen. It just means I have to be attentive to the places he's already showing up yes. in other people's lives. What struck me most that night in the park with Bentley, which was their dog, was how many people volunteered to talk about some of the hardest parts of their lives. It's almost as though the presence of a dog opened up an emotional doorway for them to talk not just about how much they loved and enjoyed their dog, but about others' joys and pains as well. And I've totally found that to be true. Just having babies even. Yeah. You get in pretty quickly like, this is harder than I thought it was going to yes. be. I haven't slept in four weeks. How did you do it? What are you guys learning? Like, There's a camaraderie almost when you have sort of this shared experience. And I think I think that whole dichotomy switch that I read twice about not simply just <laughs> talking powerful. talking about Jesus, mm-hmm. but listening for Jesus is like that's something introverts and extroverts need to learn. By the way, absolutely, and and so I think that the the learning curve for me here as someone who's increasingly introverted but not an introvert is that introverts can be made to feel like if they're not boldly evangelizing, like kind of how we we talk about that they feel there's a guilt there. But that they have a they have a skill, a listening skill and an ability that is that is better than most of us extroverts have. I love how they finished this article says, I used to wish I could be more extroverted in public. Now I'm learning that God has made me the way I am for a reason that he can use the unique gifts we introverts have. Mm. More and more, I'm realizing that walking my dog, being with my kids or reading on a bench provide opportunities to listen and have conversations rather than seeing those conversations as an inconvenience to my walk or whatever else I may be doing at the time. I think for introverts, hopefully you're you're feeling really encouraged by this to be like, oh, I can still be myself and still make a difference and still live on mission for God. And again, we've talked about it too. Introversion does not mean antisocial. Like he's writing from his first person perspective, but it's all about where you get your energy from. So like please hear that. Yep. We're not saying all extroverts are highly social and all introverts are antisocial. That's not true at all. But 
I think some of the fears that he's, he's touching on are actually pretty common fears for a lot of people. And this idea of learning to just simply live into however you've been wired and like listen for the ways that God is maybe like the idea of just bringing Again, I don't know how to knit at all. I tried once. Did you really? It was terrible. <laughs> it took me like a month and a half to get two inches of a scarf, and I was like, this isn't for me. Really? But like bringing something that's a solitary hobby of yours to a public place or a book, right? Like how many times has somebody like, hey, what are you reading there? Oh, I've, I've never heard of that before. I think those are really, really mm. beautiful ways to live on mission. And as we've often said, mission isn't something you have to like cram into your already busy life. It is your life. So I... How do I begin and end each day asking God, how, how can I make you known today? Like, yeah. how can I open my eyes to your presence at work at the grocery store in mm. my neighborhood with my coworkers? I think praying that prayer. Now, it's a dangerous prayer. You ask God to open your eyes. He's going to open your eyes. Yeah. And you're going to start to see people. People will be harder to ignore. Like promptings will be harder mm. to kind of shove down. You will, you will begin. I really believe this to feel nudgings and promptings like, okay. I think I need to go next door and talk to that person. And I really don't want to, or I'm really tired or whatever, but living on mission, man, it's not just something you add to your life. It is life. And I think Mm. that is a, uh, that's a really, really challenging article. That's good. That's good. Well, you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And if you're just joining us for the first time ever, first, welcome. Things are going to get weird. Secondly, <laughs> things are uh, going to get weird. Brian no, and I'm I, nervous. Well, you're nervous for the weirdness? I am a little bit. Do you want me to I don't know what you mean by it. comfort you or something? Do you want to <laughs> hold hands? Uh, so we're both pastors, and so every once in a while we're kind of drawn to uh, an article or something that happened on social media that involves the church or Christianity or pastors and uh one website that we tend to frequent a good deal is churchleaders.com. And I think the last time we did a church leaders article, you and I actually ended up disagreeing a good deal oh, with the article, right. which is also sometimes part of the fun because, sure. you know, I get people all the time that will send me or they'll forward me emails and say, is this you? Do, like, do you agree with this? Is this true of your experience? Like, it's mm. pretty, it's pretty interesting how interested some people are in just the the role of the pastor and the rhythms of the church and I always feel really appreciative that people like yes. want to kind of understand like you have a bizarre job and I read this thing on some website is that true do we do that is that so this one's pretty interesting it's uh, 12 things a church pastor cannot do there are 12 things a church pastor cannot do even though pastors are in my judgment amazing people yes I think this is probably written by a pastor uh, <laughs> they faithfully serve Sunday after Sunday often with no desire for recognition or fame in faith they can do a lot but here are 12 things a church pastor cannot do I actually don't know if the person writing this is a pastor yeah, or no not. Idea. I'm assuming probably not but uh why don't we, rather than kind of just read all 12 right away, why don't we read one and then we'll respond. So why don't, yeah. you, why don't you take the first one? And I think this is an interesting list because part of the problem is people th- put more on pastors than they probably should. But really what, the, really what the issue is a lot of times, I'm going to speak for myself, is we as pastors put too much on ourselves. Like, oh, yeah. I can do everything. No so, doubt. Uh, 12 things a church pastor can't do. Number one, read minds. Everybody knows that, but many church members hold pastors accountable for unstated expectations. Okay. Have, have you felt that one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I, I'm feeling this way. I think we should do this. I think this, or you should know this about me. And you're like, how was I supposed to know that? Right, right, that's right. happened on occasion. Yeah. I think that's part of the uh, kaleidoscope of ministries because you could go to 12 different churches and the expectation of the pastors in those churches might 
legitimately be very different from church to church. Yes. So you can't even just say, oh, a pastor yes. does this. Yes. It's very, very different based on the context. Number two of 12 things a church pastor cannot do, be everywhere. No human being can be every place <laughs> at once, yet some members still get angry when pastors have to say no. We've talked about this one. You love saying no. I do. You're so good at it. <laughs> Probably too good at it. <laughs> I was I, kidding. You said you don't like to say no because you are you have this people-pleasing mechanism. I do, but you know what I actually – yeah, I'm going to – enter you into some of my complexities of my brain. I actually don't have a hard time saying no to going to things. Oh, uh, doing things though. Yeah. Like I have a hard, yeah. Like this be everywhere. I've never, uh, maybe it's just our church. I've never felt this, this pressure to be at everything. Right. Even as a youth pastor, right? Like I know youth pastors who were like, they felt like they had to, some like to do it, but they had to be at every kid's game and right, every kid's, right. I never really felt that. I don't know. Do you feel like you're expected to be everywhere? Well, I probably more at, no, I probably feel this at times. The youth pastor thing, you know, you you add the bizarre nature of ministry with youth mm-hmm. uh, and being a young pastor, and you really want to prove yourself. You want to show that you're a real pastor and not just you know, not just some slacker that does lock-ins. You know what I mean? There's, I think yes, that's part of what drives you. Like you're you're going to see me at everything, every game, every recital. I'm going to be there. I think yeah. that's part of what motivates that sometimes. Number three, uh, pastors can't change hearts. Uh, it says only God can do that. That's a uh, that's a good one. Like, uh, especially when there's when there lacks momentum, maybe in your church, or you're not seeing that fruit. I know that I, but also other people can be like, hey, we need to change something to, you know, see more baptisms yeah. or to do this. And you're like, I, I don't know how to do that. I know right. how to faithfully preach the gospel as best I can. I know how to pray with people, love people as best I can. The whole bringing about transformation uh, becomes a difficult one, and uh, it's never really overtly said, but sometimes it's implied. Well, yeah, some, like we had a baptism Sunday a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and somebody, and again, they were, you know, I think meaning it to be encouraging. They're like, man, your your sermon was fantastic. Look at how many people got baptized. And I was uh, like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> let's, let's, not, let's not link those two because ultimately, you know, I, I can't change our heart with the sermon. Uh, number four of 12 things a church pastor cannot do, know everything. Most pastors study hard, but nobody can answer every question somebody asks. Uh, that was one of the most freeing things that I learned in ministry was yeah. just getting comfortable saying, I don't know. Sometimes, yeah. you know, you have the person that like corners you on Sunday and they're like, what about yeah. this obscure verse? And you're like, you know, what? I don't know. I don't know. I'll go look it up. If I got no idea. And that's usually my commitment. I'll say, you know what? I don't know. Yep. But you seem passionate about this. Let me go do some reading and then I'll get back to you. Yes. And, so, and most of the time people are like very, very appreciative of that. Every once in a while, they're like, what do you mean you don't know? I'm yep. like, I don't. I've never heard this question before. I, I have no clue. I'm so sorry. Oh, uh, that's a good one. And the best thing that can do, you kind of perpetuate it if you're a pastor out there who's like always pretending to know everything. Right. Like, it's really freeing, like you said, to be able to just say, hey, I'll go take a look at it or let's talk more. Let's go grab coffee. Let's your, talk. Your value out. is not based on being able to answer yep. every trivia question. Number five, and I think you timed this for this one to be for me. Uh, <laughs> please, everybody. Oh, really? Even Jesus couldn't do that. That the is author true. Says. <laughs> uh, this is a hard one, right? We want. Uh, we I like to be liked and uh, you want people to be happy with you and you want people to be excited. And so uh, really, it can be so, uh, so tiring and exhausting to chase after individuals uh, uh, like I, I got to go make that person happy. Let me go ha- fix that for that person. Let me do that. 
Uh, well, and the flip of it, though, is to still love people, right? Because right, some, sometimes I'll hear pastors be like, "Well, my job isn't to please everybody," you know, right? Like, yeah, but you're kind of a jerk to most <laughs> everybody. You, know? you don't have to try to displease yeah, right, everybody. Right, right. The opposite isn't true. I'm totally with that one. But let me, uh, let me just run through a few more of these just yep. to make sure we get them all in. Uh, live sinlessly. Nobody can, including you. Um, that is both challenging and convicting. Yep. Uh, number seven, grow churches. If the church does grow, it's because God does it. Mm. That's a humbling one, right? I think every yeah. pastor feels that to some degree. You look at the attendance number and you're like, man, what am I doing? Well, yeah, right. Exactly. There, what there am I doing some, or not doing? There is something hard about that one because there are things pastors do and don't do that cause churches to either grow or not grow. Yeah. But ultimately, yeah. especially if we're talking about healthy growth, like that is, that is a mysterious work of God most times. Yeah. Uh, number eight, multiply dollars. That's too bad, too, <laughs> since some churches don't pay their pastors well. Ooh. Number nine, escape mistakes. All of us will mess up sometime, often unintentionally and even unknowingly. Hmm. Number 10, avoid favoritism. Pastors minister to everybody, but having better and best friends is natural. That's an interesting one, because I feel like we yeah. did a segment a couple weeks ago that was implying that pastors should not have close friends or in their church. that it's hard to have friends, Yeah. Yeah, where did you land on that? I thought you had said so. close uh, friends in your church is really tough. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that article, I think that was a Saul's article where we said, I kind of shared with you that when I started ministry, I was like, nope, all my best friends are going to be in church. Hmm. And just through the church, I'm still a firm believer that you can and need to have friends within your church, but that it's it's increasingly complex in my mind. We'll yeah. put it that way. All right, here's the last two uh, of 12 things a church pastor cannot do. Uh, 11, reveal everything. No matter how much you may want to know the details, pastors may not be in a position to tell you. Have mm-hmm. you been caught in that before? Yes. Like, come on, just give me the details. And you're yep. like, I can't. Yep. This is not. Yep. You ever gotten someone get mad at you for not disclosing the details? No. Usually people, in my experience, they get it, but they're, they kind of look at you like, hey, we're, we're closer. Come like, on. You can tell me. Right? I won't tell. Right. right. It's kind of playground, isn't and it? And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I, I've got to fight the desire to be like, hey, I know something. Hey, we can oh, interesting. And I know how inappropriate that is, but there's a human desire in there to be like, yeah. hey, like, I got something you want to know. It. Right. Gosh. Biblically, that's, a, that's called gossip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's exactly uh, right. You got to fight that on both sides there. And the last one is uh, number 12 of 12 things a church pastor cannot do. Ignore sin. Pastors must address this issue even when it's not popular. I wonder why that one was 12, by the way. Yep. Because I feel like increasingly, like, I can't think of the last time. I went to a leadership or church planning conference where they talked about, like, how do you deal with sin and brokenness within your community? Right. Like, it feels like a very distant and unpopular topic right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Like, is that something that you guys train your leaders in? Like, hey, when you have a leader in your team or somebody really screws up, here, here's how you walk through that with them. Well, that's a great question. I was going to say, I, I, we certainly deal with it. Right. And I'm assuming do, everyone but does. When you just use the word train. I'm going, no, not really. I don't know right. sure how much intentional training we've put to, hey, when someone in your small group shares something. That's a good point. How about you guys? Uh, it's it's a part of, I mean, at some levels of training, for sure. Um, maybe maybe it's something that needs to be a little more universal. It's something that historically has been called church discipline, you yes. know, yes. but we also know historically that, quote unquote, church discipline has been used in some pretty awful ways Yes, where so-and-so was excommunicated or cast out and wasn't given a trial or a conversation, you know, like there's certainly like some sticky sides to this, but uh, I I mean, again, I don't think this is written by a pastor. I don't know that I agree with all of them, Mm -hmm. but I do like 
articles like this because it does kind of help. It's helpful painting a yeah. broader picture. And a sure. little peek behind the curtain. So this is at churchleaders.com, and we uh, we posted on the Facebook page, 12 things a church pastor cannot do. I'd love to know, what do you agree with? What do you not agree with? Yep. Those of you who are pastors, those of you who are church people, what would you add to this list? What would you take away? And uh, hopefully that was, you know, in some ways helpful for yep. anyone listening. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Holy cow, it's the end of the show. <laughs> that was some excitement. <laughs> to that man, oh man, I'm trying to really bring the energy up. we got to land the plane, no, but it doesn't it. mean we can't do it with flair. But uh, this is how we end the show each and every day. A little bit of interweb insanity. It's stories that we have not seen. It's sound effects, though, that we have been able to predict with some accuracy, but there's always some new sound effects in there. So... If we're stumbling over the words because we can't pronounce it or because we're mortified by the story, it's because we have no idea it's coming. It's always uh, equal parts fun and terrifying. Brian Fromm is going to do us the pleasure of kicking us off. Yep. Uh, Florida. Come on. <laughs> Come on, Florida. Drunken man riding Segway tells cops he drank nearly two bottles of wine. Jeez Louise. Did you know it's illegal to drive a Segway while intoxicated? Well, Andy Seegers of Polk County found out the hard way that driving drunk while on a Segway can land you in jail. Not only did Seegers drunkenly ride the Segway, but he did so outside a sheriff's office substation on Dunson Road. A sheriff, sheriff's office lieutenant saw Seegers unsteadily riding the Segway in the middle lane, swerving and impeding traffic, the Post said. The lieutenant said there were other clues that Seegers was intoxicated. He slurred his speech, smelled of alcohol, and had watery eyes. But the most incriminating factor was that Seegers told the lieutenant he had consumed nearly two bottles of wine. Oh and he endangered himself and others, but we hope this will get him on the right track. Seegers was arrested, taken to jail, where he provided breath samples, resulting in a .243, another one of .22, and .238. Have you been drinking? <laughs> I'm not drunk. Right. <laughs> a .24, by the way, when the legal limit is .08, yep. is not great. Nope. Also... I see a lot of sober people not able to successfully drive a Segway. That is true. That's pretty remarkable. Oh, another Florida anteater attacked boy during Disney cruise vacation. Why are there anteaters yes. on the cruise? A boy who was attacked by an anteater during a Disney cruise vacation didn't receive proper medical care once he was back on board the ship, according to a recently filed lawsuit. Attorneys wrote that the boy and his mother booked a vacation abroad uh, abroad aboard the Disney Wonder mm-hmm. in October 2018. And when they got off the ship in cart. Oh, how do I say that? Cartagena, 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 Cartagena. Colombia to visit the National uh, Aviary of Colombia. An anteater that was, quote, not properly sequestered from visitors attacked the boy, causing severe injury. Documents show that the boy did receive medical care once he got back on board the ship, but it was not enough to keep him from contracting a severe microbacterial infection. Attorneys allege the boy wasn't properly diagnosed or treated on board the cruise ship and didn't receive proper care. Come to me, jungle friends. <laughs> oh, this poor boy. California. California. Uh, woman flags down police officer for gas to fill stolen car. Uh, a woman was arrested after she made an unusual request. According to Lincoln police, the woman waved down one of their officers on Thursday night. She told the officer that she ran out of gas and needed a ride to her car. No way. The officer gave the woman a ride as well as a gas can. When he checked out the status of the vehicle, he found that it had been reported stolen on Wednesday. The woman was arrested for vehicle theft and possession of methamphetamine what? and booked into the prison. You two are just dumber than a bag of hammers. There's a metaphor here somewhere. I want to use this in a sermon. I don't know what for. Uh, okay. I think you I think you have that in you, though. Why would you call the cops? I don't know. 
That's an insane thing to do. All right. Holy cow. This photo's hilarious. Maine. <laughs> Boy who called parents bluff and wore hot dog costume in school at e-photo goes viral. <laughs> this photo funny. is amazing. I will note, though, there is no ketchup on this hot dog. Um, all right. Jake Arsenault is on a roll. <laughs> Literally. Uh. <laughs> I love this article. At least when it comes to the boys' school ID photo. Jake's dad, Craig Arsenault, seems to relish uh. his son's ID photo. And frankly, mm-hmm. others have too. Since the photo of the fourth grader dressed as a hot dog has been shared more than 24,000 times since he shared it to his Facebook page. My wife and I dared our son to wear a hot dog costume for school pictures, the dad said on Facebook Thursday. The school let him do it, and I couldn't be happier. The boy attends Bitterford Intermediate School, Intermediate Media School, which serves 4th and 5th graders in Bitterford, Maine, about 20 miles south of Portland. I triple dog dare you! Ah, that's a double whammy. That's a double entendre. Yes, it is. Last one, Florida. Man sues NBC Universal over unlimited soda refills at theme park. Hmm. He's thirsty for justice. <laughs> a Bronx man is suing NBC Universal after he paid for an unlimited refill soda machine deal at one of the company's theme parks, only to discover he had to wait a whole 10 minutes between each pour. Louis Arnault is bubbling with anger over the false advertising, oh saying he learned while trying to quench his thirst that the refills were, in fact, limited to a measly total of six per hour, according to the class action lawsuit. Arnault says he visited Universal's Island of Adventure in Orlando on July 30th and bought a 16-ounce Coca-Cola Freestyle Cup, which purported unlimited refills all day for $16.99. The next day, he reactivated the cup for $8.99. The cups come with a computer chip to show you've paid for the bottomless deal, but Arnaud learned they were also tracking how often users top it off and are programmed to limit refills every 10 minutes. Wow. When he tried to quench his thirst and refill his cup again just before the period was up, the machine flashed a message rejecting his request. (laughs) Hi, it says, you are not ready to fill up yet, it proclaimed, along with the number of minutes he had to wait. His suit includes ads for the freestyle drink, which promotes unlimited refills with 100-plus drink choices, but doesn't mention the limits. This is the most blatant case of fraudulent advertising since my suit against the film The Never-Ending Story. <laughs> uh, I gotta ask, though, could you be drinking 16 ounces every 10 minutes all yeah. day long? I think he was going around just topping it off all the way. That's, That's what insane. He was doing. This is Skynet, too, right? The fact that we can install these chips... On these cups, I don't know. Seems maybe, a bit much. Maybe I've been living under a rock. I had no <laughs> idea. No yeah. idea we were incapable of that. Well, never a dull moment here on the Common Good. We hope that you will join us tomorrow and every day from four to six p.m. or wherever it is you get your podcasts. My name is Zian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, and this has been the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life.